Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, did Shakespeare really write Shakespeare? Now, the most famous doubter is Mark Twain. Mark Twain wrote an entire book on this subject. Is Shakespeare dead? And he recounted how uh, when he was uh, learning to be a pilot on the Mississippi River, that the master of the ship who was training him was a doubter of Shakespeare and talked at him at length while they were on the river about what a phony Shakespeare of Stratford was. This podcast is brought to you by Canada's decontamination specialists, crime and trauma scene cleaners. Crime and Trauma Scene Cleaners is committed to helping people when tragedy strikes. Their objective is to restore safety to an environment in the most professional and discreet manner possible. To contact Crime and Trauma Scene Cleaners, visit crimescenecleaners.ca. Call 1-866-724-0800, 1-866-724-0800, or email them at info at crimescenecleaners.ca. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Greetings from southern Greece. Well, I just returned from the Messinian Bay Hotel just down the road where the family and I enjoyed a wonderful afternoon swim, followed by a spectacular sunset. The staff there were even conducting samba lessons on the deck. The mighty Aphrodite unfortunately couldn't coax me out there. Lucky for her, well, she should know better. I was born with three left feet. In any event, on to our episode for today. The Shakespeare authorship question has been called the greatest literary mystery in the world. Is it possible the wrong man has been credited with the works of Shakespeare? If so, how would that impact our understanding of the plays and their historical context? My guest is among a growing community of experts who now believe that William Shakespeare was a nom de plume that concealed the identity of England's greatest poet and dramatist and that continued to hide it from readers, playgoers, and scholars for hundreds of years. Ramon Jimenez is a longtime Shakespeare Oxford Society member and the author of several books, including his latest, Shakespeare's Apprenticeship, identifying the real playwright's earliest works. Ramon Jimenez, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Delighted to be here. Likewise, happy to have you. Now, when one is discussing the the Shakespeare authorship question, I've always found it can be a little confusing as to who we're talking about. So, uh, I mean, obviously we would refer to the William Shakespeare who lived at uh, Stratford-upon-Avon as, you know, William Shakespeare from Stratford. Uh, but before we divulge, you know, who you believe the real author was, how do we refer then to the Shakespeare who who actually wrote the plays and poems? Well, I call that person Shakespeare, and the man in Stratford I call Shakespeare, 
that was the way his name was spelled on almost all the legal documents in his county without the medial E. Ah, Shakespeare. All right. So I call him Shakespeare, and that's an easy way to distinguish between him and the author. Excellent. All right. So what do we know about Shakespeare, who, uh, who lived in Stratford? Well, um, we have a number of legal records here and there, and uh, some uh, lo- local records, but we know very little about him. Um, the records, for instance, uh, that might have been produced when he went to school don't don't exist, so we don't even know if if he went to school. We have a christening record, a marriage record. Uh, various lawsuits, uh, uh, convictions in Stratford-on-Avon. And then in London, uh, uh, we have a reference to a Mr. Shakespeare who was staying at a home around 1604, staying at a home in London where there uh, a quarrel developed among the family and a court case uh, ensued, and he was called to testify which he did. Uh, Actually, he said he didn't remember anything. But he was referred to as Mr. Shakespeare from Stratford. And he he lived in this home. He uh, apparently rented a room or something there in London. Also, there's some records uh, in London uh, where he's uh, being chased by tax authorities. He's being billed and he's moved and they can't find him to pay his taxes. Uh, otherwise, there's very little known about Shakespeare of Stratford. There are no uh, written records uh, of anything else about him. Uh, there are no mentions of him in letters or uh, diaries. There, There is uh, a single letter that apparently was written to him from Stratford while he was in London. It was from... Uh, fellow named Quiney in uh, Stratford who asked him for a loan, uh, but there was no answer to that, and there's even a question whether uh, Shakespeare ever received it. So that that's the story. He, uh, there's a record of his death and, and his uh, burial, uh, there's no record of any mention of his death or any... Uh, commemoration or any ceremony or any eulogy or any obituary, anything like that. So there's very little. We know very little about him. Do we have a signature? Could he sign his own name? Well, we have eight, we have six signatures that are alleged to be by Shakespeare of Stratford. And they, three of them, uh, uh, they are on legal documents. A couple of them are on a mortgage document, and there are three others on his will. Uh, other than those on his will, it's even questionable that the others are his. So it, there are six alleged signatures, but they are all they are spelled differently. They are not completed. The latter part of of the Shakespeare name is uh, is, is an in signature, and they appear to be written by someone who was very unused to writing. Now they say that uh, oh he was he was ill when he signed his will, and that's that's the reason for that. But 
these same characteristics appear on the earlier signatures. So he was either ill most of his life, or uh, he was simply not accustomed to writing. And, you know, as we go on, it just seems like a, a, a complete slam dunk in terms of uh, the authorship question that, that he is not uh, the author. However, let me just proceed a little bit a bit further. Did he not have children, and is it true that those children could not read or write? It appears to be true, but he had two daughters, and they signed their names with X's, which is what people who did who couldn't write. Now, it's conceivable they might have been able to read, but not likely. Uh, Shakespeare's parents were also illiterate. So they're asking us to believe that the... uh, that the person who, uh, the most skillful user of the English language had illiterate parents and illiterate children. Right, right. And uh, um, an educational background that uh, is is shrouded in mystery. Uh, That's right. All right, so when did the, the works first attributed to Shakespeare, when did they first appear on the scene? Well... Um, in 1593, the poem uh, Venus and Adonis was published, and a dedication was attached to that, and that dedication was signed William Shakespeare, and that was the first time the name appeared in print. And the following year, uh, another uh, narrative poem, Lucrece, uh, was published with the same type of dedication and and the same name under it, William Shakespeare. And uh, later in the 1590s, 1598, 1599, uh, individual quartos of plays began to appear uh, with the name William Shakespeare on them. So that was that was the beginning of it. And then, kind of a. Um an anthology appeared years after Shakespeare's death. That's right. That's right. Tell me about that. In uh, 1623, uh, a syndicate of publishers, uh, four of them, brought out what we call the first folio. And this was a collection of 36 Shakespeare plays, uh, Half of them had never been published before. And this is the uh, sort of the basis of the Shakespeare canon. Now, since then, scholars have added three or four or five, uh, three or four plays to that canon that they think are by Shakespeare. Uh, But as I said, uh, when Shakespeare... Well, whoever he was, when he died, half half his uh, plays had not even been printed. Of course, that was common at that time. Most plays were not printed. Right, right. And so the folio came out, the first folio, how long after Shakespeare's death? Uh, let's see, six, seven years. He seven died years. in 1616, came out 1623. There were three subsequent folios, 1632... 1660-something, and so on. There were, there were four of them altogether. Do we have, and they were a little different. Okay. Do we have any of the original uh, transcripts? 
we have only printed editions of Shakespeare's plays. We have no manuscripts. Nothing in his own hand. No. No, in fact, there are very few uh, manuscripts have survived from Elizabeth's reign. So here we have Shakespeare uh, from Stratford. When he dies, there's no real mention of his death. The greatest writer uh, that Britain had produced, uh, nothing commemorating his death, uh, you know, no, uh, no mention of a, a, a grand funeral. No, nothing. And, and we might add, two years later, John Fletcher, a playwright, died, and there was uh, great mourning and ceremony. And also when the actor... Um, uh, Richard, uh, 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 can't think of his name at the moment. Um, uh, Burbage, Richard Burbage, a uh, well-known actor. When he died uh, a couple of years after Shakespeare, another uh, great uh, funeral uh, ceremony, and uh, London was was uh, drowned in gloom, they, they say. So there were, uh, people knew about playwrights and about actors, but Shakespeare aroused no one's attention when he died. Right. And whoever the, the real author was, and we'll get into that shortly, why would he have chosen this name? Did he know William Shakespeare of Stratford, or did he just pick a name out of a hat? Why this name? Well, um, I think uh, he just picked this as a as a pen name uh, because of um, its uh, its classical connotations. Uh, uh, the uh, the Greek goddess uh, Athena was the, the the goddess of culture and arts and so on, and uh, she was uh, typically portrayed uh, shaking a spear. And uh, the name Shakespeare uh, is is similar other names that that people took as nicknames like longbow or or uh, strong sword names like that. And of course, William is just uh, an ordinary first name. I think uh, the author picked that as a, uh, as a pseudonym, and eventually it became associated with Shakespeare of Stratford, who, who did travel to London and was part of the theatrical community. Now, whether they knew each other or not, it's hard to say. Uh, uh, people, uh, there were many fewer people in London, of course, at that time, and a lot of the families were interrelated. Uh, people, people tended to know almost everyone else in, in in the business, as it were. So it's it's possible that uh, he knew him, and it appears that in uh, as you like it. The playwright is making fun of Shakespeare, of Stratford, making fun of his uh, attempts to pass himself off as a playwright. Ah, so he may have been in on it. He may have known about it and played along? It's possible. It's possible. It, it, it's just, we just don't have enough evidence right. to say one way or the other. Right. But if that were the case, and people then... Uh, 
bought into it, then William Shakespeare of Stratford would have been better known. He would have been, if he was, if he was going along with this ruse, people would have, if people bought into it, he would have been celebrated. People would have known about William Shakespeare. They would have attended his funeral, etc. The other, the other thing that's, that stands out is whoever wrote these plays had intimate knowledge of the, 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 the royal court. Uh, they, were, they were very well-traveled uh, you know, Shakespeare writing about Italy and so forth. Is there any evidence that Shakespeare traveled outside of England? No, there isn't. No. And uh, there isn't any evidence uh, that, that he was in a position to, to know what went on at court, much less uh, uh, satirize well-known nobles at court and get away with it. Uh, so, fit him at all. All right, so the actual authorship question. Uh, I mean, it's obvious it's, it's the name of a, uh, a fellowship, the, the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship. And Oxford, in this case, is referring to whom? Well, that's Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford, uh, born in 1550, and um, was... Uh, uh, became a ward of the crown when he was 12 years old in 1562 when his father died. This was the, the custom at that time, uh, carrying over from feudal times. And and so he grew up in London, became a courtier and an intimate of the queen. And uh, <laughs> he traveled, he learned languages, and uh, he went to sea, he uh, served in the military, and he corresponded with uh, scientists and uh, other scholars. Uh, and he was known as a patron of poets and playwrights. He employed two playwrights uh, as his uh, secretary. And... Um, a lot of his family appear in the Shakespeare plays. That's roughly the the evidence for Oxford. Right, and and talk to me about the tradition of uh, people associated with the court using uh, aliases or nom de plumes. Why would they Why would they choose to do that? Why wouldn't he have published under his own name? Well, at that time, the nobility was still living in the feudal age, and they did not indulge in commerce or in uh, 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 business or, or trying to earn money. They didn't publish what they wrote. When they wrote, they wrote um, as a hobby, or as a uh, pastime, and they wrote, uh, they produced manuscripts, and they passed them among themselves. Uh, the copies were made, and they were passed around. Uh, people responded to other people's manuscripts, and so on. They were not interested in publishing, uh, uh, and to do so, uh, people would have looked down on them. It was beneath 
the dignity of a nobleman to attempt to make money from any any purpose except uh, rent, renting out and farming and exploring and so on, but uh, engaging in commerce in, in the city or uh, publishing his his work. It was uh, not de rigueur. Would it also have been considered telling tales out of school by uh, by those in the court, that here was an insider uh, maybe taking gentle swipes or sat, uh, you know, turns at satire of the uh, the Elizabethan court? That's right. When when they wrote about courts, uh, uh, there there uh, there was uh, there was the yes the opportunity for satire, and that was another reason why the Queen and others would want Oxford to remain anonymous. Because if he weren't, uh, then the people portrayed in his plays might be identified because people knew that he knew who they were and, and what they were doing. So that was that was another reason why uh, he was he remained anonymous. Are there I mean, I don't know how much is known uh, about the 17th Earl of Oxford, how intimately we know him. But I'm wondering if there are clues in the uh, the sonnets, the plays, for example, a turn of phrase that Oxford was known to make that we see in I don't know Hamlet or or some some of the other uh, works. Can you give me any examples? Well, I don't know if I can give you specific examples, but there's there have been several studies done uh, comparing the language and phrasing in his letters. We we have dozens of letters of his uh, have nothing to do with the theater, but they uh, they are diplomatic letters or letters about business, phrases and words in those that appear also in the Shakespeare plays. Um, it, it's quite clear uh, that that a, a strong connection can be seen between uh, his his language and and the language of Shakespeare. Yes. I was also reading about an incident. Uh, there was a, a, a there's a scene in Hamlet where they're describing a falling out between uh, two tennis players, and uh, apparently that incident occurred in in uh, Oxford's life as well. Do you do you remember that story at all? Yes, uh, in 1579, Oxford and and Sir Philip Sidney had a had a squabble on one of the tennis courts uh, in the palace and um, they they argued and Oxford called Sydney a puppy and Sydney stormed off and later challenged Oxford to a duel uh, the queen intervened intervened and told Sydney to back off saying he had no business uh, arguing with uh, with a nobleman and uh, tennis appears in several plays, and uh, the word puppy appears in several plays. Uh, Oxford uh, Oxford uh, took a dislike to Sidney. Well, they disliked each other, of course. And he satirized him in a number of plays. They're clearly uh, digs at, at Sidney. So that's one incident, yes, that uh, turns up in, in the plays. More of my conversation with Ramon Jimenez on the Shakespeare authorship mystery when Conspiracy Unlimited continues. 
Hey, if you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, you're going to want to check out my brand new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet Shop. There's an exclusive line of men and women's classic tees with a very cool design. It's a limited run and a limited time offer, a special price of $21 US. That lasts only until August the 19th. There are also mugs, tote bags, and stickers. Go to strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca, and find the Strange Planet Shop button at the bottom of the page. The Strange Planet Shop at strangeplanet.ca. The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Then, it is violently opposed. Finally, it is accepted as self-evident. Let me just read that again, what that means. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Ramon Jimenez is here discussing the Shakespeare authorship question. Now, throughout history, there have been a number of of people, of famous people, actors, uh, performers, who, who share this this belief that Oxford, the Earl of Oxford, was in fact the author. Uh, can we talk about some of those? I mean, let's start with Charlie Chaplin. Yes, uh, he was one. Um, uh, I, I, we were reminded of this uh, just, uh, I think, yesterday when John Paul Stevens died. John Paul Stevens was an Oxfordian. A Supreme Court justice. That's right. And there were three other justices. This matter was brought to them uh, some years back. And they didn't really come to any conclusion except to say that, uh, you know, there was a, a, a reason to be interested in it. But they couldn't really uh, rule or decide on, on who wrote the plays. But three or four of them... Uh, showed uh, that they, they were very much doubted, Shakespeare or Stratford. Now, the most famous doubter is Mark Twain. Mm. Mark Twain wrote an entire book on this subject called, Good. Is Shakespeare Dead? Oh. And he, re- and he recounted how uh, when he was uh, learning to be a pilot on the Mississippi River, that the master of the ship who was training him was a doubter of Shakespeare. And... Uh, talked at, at him at length uh, while they were on the river uh, about what a phony uh, Shakespeare of Stratford was. Uh, others have been uh, Walt Whitman was sure that uh, Shakespeare was not the author. Sigmund Freud was another one. Uh, John Galsworthy. Uh, there, are, there are a lot of them. Uh, they uh, each one uh, has has a different reason for not believing. And the question is, should this should this issue be investigated? That's that's all we want. Those of us who doubt Shakespeare, but the uh, the academics and the the publishers and the universities say there is no question. There is no reason. There is no need to discuss this issue. There is no issue. So they won't talk about it. Yes, they won't uh, debate it. It's, it's, um, it's strange how the authorship question, as you say, is met by uh, academia with derision, condescension, 
uh, dismissiveness. And yet, on the face of it, uh, it seems to be, as I mentioned earlier, a slam dunk case. I don't see how anyone could argue against. So what is it? What is the threat here? Is it tenure? What is going on? Well, uh, that that's part of it, I'm sure. Uh, but there's even more. I mean, here are these people have been taught that Shakespeare was the author. They are now being paid to teach that Shakespeare is the author. And so for those two reasons, they're, they're not going give, to give that up. Uh, it's their reputation and, and their uh, livelihood and their training from childhood. I mean, we've all been trained from childhood in this. And so uh, there are very few, or occasionally uh, an academic, usually someone who is not in the literature field, maybe a historian or a, uh, a, a drama professor. Uh, we have lots of lawyers and scientists uh, in, in the group who are, who are doubters. I just wanted to circle back to one of the uh, the doubters again, and that was uh, Malcolm X, uh, who I thought made a, a brilliant point, and that had to do with uh, the King James Bible. Well, I'm not familiar with that. What what do you say? Well, apparently King James had used poets, the the greatest poets, to help him put together the King James Bible. Uh, at that time, it would have been contemporaneous with Shakespeare, uh, and yet Shakespeare was not invited to partake in the project. Uh huh. Well, yes, that, that's certainly that's certainly true. In fact, we hear nothing about Shakespeare. You know, there's there's nothing in any record except these legal documents uh, that involves him in writing. Uh, writing in in any way. Another point I'd like to make: no one in Stratford thought he was a writer. There were several writers in in town. Folk Greville lived right outside uh, of town. Michael Drayton was an exact contemporary of Shakespeare. He lived about 25 miles away, but he visited Shakespeare, uh, Stratford often. John Hall, Shakespeare's son-in-law, was a doctor. Mm. And uh, for the last 10 years of Shakespeare's life, John Hall was, was the town doctor, and he kept a casebook of, of his more notable patients, and he wrote about them. Uh, he, he mentioned one had compiled a, a dictionary, he mentioned another one was a fine scholar, and so on and so forth. He had no entry for his father-in-law, much less anything to say about him. None of these people, Falk Greville, Michael Drayton, William Camden, knew the Shakespeare family. He was also familiar with the London stage and with poets and playwrights, never mentioned Shakespeare in anything he wrote. None of these people thought Shakespeare of Stratford had anything to do with writing, even his descendants. uh, No one ever claimed... uh, that he was the author. He never claimed he was the author. There's just no evidence for it. Right. I mean, if he was, if your ancestor was the William Shakespeare, uh, you would, uh, you'd have bragging rights. You'd be telling anyone who would listen, obviously. What about, but right. about the town of Stratford itself? Uh, to what extent have they perhaps participated in this, let's call it a cover-up, 
uh, obviously, you know, that it, it, untold, you know, tourist dollars involved here. Uh, to what extent are they protecting this this lie? Oh, well, it's it's a full-scale effort. Uh, the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust is, is the official institution that is uh, managing the alleged Shakespeare properties in Stratford-on-London. Of course, they run the they run the festival and the town and so on. And no, none of them is willing to talk about this either. Uh, that, w- <laughs> that would be a disaster for them if, uh, if this were revealed. Sure, killing the golden goose, to be sure. Right, right. And what about the Oxford, uh, the, the descendants of the 17th Earl of Oxford? Is it possible that they have in their possession... Uh, original manuscripts or knowledge that could blow this case wide open? Well, if they if they did, they would bring them out. Um, there, uh, it's it's been you know four hundred years, and so there there are descendants, but uh, and and they're scattered all over uh, the the earldom. Uh, the, the the earldom died a couple of years after the 17th earl because there was no no son no, no one to inherit it there was a second earldom created but that had nothing to do with uh with shakespeare no there are no there are no uh uh r- records in in the uh in the oxfordian descendants that, that, that no they don't have anything if they if they had they would have brought it out a long time ago. Do you do you believe that the the present royal family, someone in the royal family, knows the ultimate truth? No, no, I don't. Uh, not unless they agree that it was Oxford, but I I don't think they have any inside knowledge. No, in fact, I don't think anyone does today have inside knowledge. Uh, we just we just have what we have read. In uh, in books and manuscripts uh, prepared by other people, none of, none of us were there, of course. So where do we where do we go from here with this? What's the next step, if any? Well, as I said, what we're trying to do is get a discussion going, because uh, we're confident that uh, once the academics decide to look into this with their uh, resources and capacity for research and so on, they will quickly find more evidence that uh, Oxford was the author. And so we're, what we're trying to do is uh, get the attention of a uh, prominent Shakespeare scholar or two or three and turn them, as it were, so that uh, their, their colleagues will be persuaded to at least take this up as a subject. Uh, we're not saying you know, you have to stop teaching Shakespeare and begin teaching Oxford. We're saying, uh, give us a chance to pr- present our evidence. Let your young scholars uh, uh, do research in this field. That is taboo right now. No, no young uh, professor or instructor at a university uh, is, is going to get a, uh, a degree or get uh, very much attention. Uh, except the negative kind, if, if, if he tries to do research or publish something on the authorship question, except to, to deny it and deride it. 
Well, to that end, to further uh, you know the, the the discussion and so forth, there will be a uh, a Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship uh, conference coming up. Tell me about that. You'll be speaking there. That's uh, that will be in uh, Hartford, Connecticut, uh, this October. We have a, a conference every year. The, the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship is a international organization of of hundreds of people who 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 believe that this research should be uh, begun or conducted or continued. And uh, and so we gather once, once a year in, in a different place. The public is welcome. This year we are uh, holding our meeting in the, uh, in the Mark Twain Center in Hartford, Connecticut. And we have several speakers uh, on the uh, Mark Twain Connection. Uh, we have uh, roughly three days of uh, of, of uh, presentations, and uh, we see a video or two, and have interviews and debates and so on, trying to promote the idea that Oxford is the author, and promote uh, research interest and research in, into the subject. Again, that's the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship Conference happening October 17th to the 20th at the Mark Twain House and Museum in Hartford, Connecticut. And for details and to register, people can go to ShakespeareOxfordFellowship.org. ShakespeareOxfordFellowship.org. Do you have a favorite Oxford play? Well, uh <laughs> Yes, I think it's Henry V. Uh, that's, that's what I've been working on. Uh, that was one that he rewrote, which, which brings up the subject of the book that I've just published, Shakespeare's Apprenticeship. Yes. This is a different approach to the authorship question. Uh, my premise in writing the book is that Oxford was the author, and uh, and I... Uh, I don't really argue that point any longer. I'm satisfied that uh, he's the author. And so I, my research is focused on the next step, and that is what else did he write? And what I have found is that there are five anonymous plays published uh, during or just after Elizabeth's reign that uh, have been ignored and are still uh, deemed anonymous, but are actually Oxford's first versions of canonical plays. Ah. And uh, they have titles such as King Lear. Mm -hmm. Another one is uh, The Taming of a Shrew. Mm -hmm. And uh, The Troublesome Reign of John, King of England. The True Tragedy of Richard III. And my favorite, which was his first, The Famous Victories of Henry V. And what Oxford did, and what, what I demonstrate in my book, is uh, write these five plays during his teenage. Wow. He, he began writing very early, and we, we have some evidence for that. But as I say, these, these are anonymous. And his first play, The Famous Victories of Henry V, he wrote as a, as a preteen. And 20 years later, he transformed that short, crude 
play of his teenage into the Prince Hal plays, the Henry Ed, Henry the Fourth, parts one and two, and, and Henry the Fifth. Yes. And then uh, uh, the next year, he wrote the true tragedy of Richard III, and ten years later, transformed that, rewrote it, but used the same characters and roughly the same plot, and that is uh, Richard III that we see today on the stage. He did the same thing with the next one, The Troublesome Reign of John. He used the same characters and the same plot, rewrote it entirely, and that is King John that we see today. The true play, the same pattern. And then finally, uh, he wrote uh, a romance called King Lear in his late teens, and 30 years later, when his uh, outlook had changed dramatically, he, he turned that into the tragedy we have of King Lear. Right. And is there a similarity in writing style that would connect the anonymous works with later works of Oxford? There are similarities in writing, but as I say, they were completely rewritten. We see uh, certain phrases uh, repeated and certain uh, rhetorical uh, tricks or rhetorical techniques. Uh, but the real giveaway is the plot and the characters. Uh, in some of these revisions, uh, the characters have the same names. What is... And, what, the, and the plots are very similar right, also. Right, right. I mean, what does academia do with that information? Oh, they say that, uh, well, that's a source play. Shakespeare uh, read that play, and that gave him the idea for King Lear. So, but, so they're arguing that he was a that that, that he was uh, a plagiarist. A plagiarist. That's right. Um, and uh, of course, in the history plays, he used the same historical characters, but they use he used the same fictional characters and the same fictional incidents that appeared in the earlier play. And he reused it in the canonical play. But these plays are inferior. Sure. To, well, he was a preteen. At the, <laughs> he was right, a teenager. Right. right. And, and so that's the reason that uh, the Orthodox scholars say that they're not by Shakespeare. Also, there's some evidence. Uh, there, there, there's not much evidence for their dates because uh, they were not recorded and they were not printed and so on. But the dates tend to disfavor the dates of Shakespeare of Stratford. For instance, uh, I think Famous Victories was written in 1563, which is a year before Shakespeare was born. Aha! This might be the smoking gun. But I can't prove it. At least uh, I, I can demonstrate it. I can, I can uh, bring out evidence, uh, but it, it all depends on, on Oxford and on an acceptance of uh, th this kind of evidence. Uh, the, the academic scholars just think these plays are too bad and too early to be by uh, Shakespeare Stratford, and that's why they, they reject them. But as anyone can see reading my book, in fact, you don't even have to read the book. If you read the introduction, there's enough material in there to uh, demonstrate that these are, are Shakespeare's earliest plays. 
Methinks there is a conspiracy afoot. Well, you know, they, they, they accuse us of being conspiracy theorists, but the conspiracy is that done by the Orthodox scholars. They have, they have banded together to conceal the real author and to ridicule those who try to expose him. That's a conspiracy. Indeed. How do people get a hold of uh, a copy of Shakespeare's Apprenticeship? Well, it's available uh, through the usual channels. It's published by McFarland in North Carolina, but it's available on any of the online or, or through any, any bookstore. Uh, it was published last September. All right, and again, we have the uh, the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship Conference happening October seventeenth to the twentieth at the uh, the Mark Twain Museum in Connecticut, and uh, people can go to shakespeareoxfordfellowship.org uh, to register. Uh, Ramon, a great pleasure. Thank you so much for this. Oh, you're welcome. I'm delighted, and thank you. Okay, before I say goodnight to the moon over Messenia, I'll be back to tell you a little bit about the next installment of Conspiracy Unlimited. If you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, or my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, I hope you'll consider becoming an official donor. A donation of $50 a month places you in the Star Chamber. $20 a month is the Whistleblower Tier, and a donation of just $10 per month makes you a Truth Seeker. Star Chamber and Whistleblower members can participate in an exclusive monthly online chat or video conference with me. And all donors are entered into a monthly draw for Strange Planet merchandise. Any monthly amount is welcome and greatly appreciated. To become an official donor, go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Coming up on episode 263, The Dangers of 5G. At that time, the EPA was warned in the United States, the Environmental Protection Agency, and they started accounting for non-ionizing radiation. And at that exact time, the FCC came in and said, no, we're going to be in charge of that. Don't worry, we'll be in charge of non-ionizing radiation. And so this cumulative radiation that's around us in our Wi-Fi tech and all this other stuff and in the Internet of Things, it will be drastically increased with 5G, at least 10 times more non-ionizing radiation than we now have. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. Kelenigda. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. <laughs>